Are you craving incredible song recitals? Are you interested in a behind-the-scenes view into professional song making at the highest levels of artistry? Are you looking to develop your own artistic and entrepreneurial skills as a classical musician in this ever-changing 21st century landscape? If you found yourself saying yes to any of those questions, look no further than Cincinnati Song Initiative's week-long program, The Fellowship of the Song. Taking place this year from May 19 through 26, The Fellowship brings together some of the country's brightest song performers and teachers for a week of classes, concerts, and study events. And we invite you to join us as an auditor, either in person in Cincinnati or online wherever you may be located. When you join the fellowship as an auditor, you gain instant access to the entire week's events and can go back and relive the magic through HD video recordings of each and every session. To learn more about this incredible new opportunity, visit cincinnatisonginitiative.org slash audit. Hi, I'm Laura Lavoir, and this is Song Cycle, the official podcast of Cincinnati Song Initiative, where we talk everything art song, its history, its creation, its performance, and its ability to tell stories that connect communities. In this episode, I get to talk to human and mentor extraordinaire, Dr. Eileen Strempel. Eileen is the inaugural dean for the Herb Alpert School of Music at UCLA, a famed singer and a fierce advocate for the female voice and educational leadership. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I enjoyed having the opportunity to sit down and talk with this amazing woman. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of CSI's official podcast called Song Cycle. Today, we are very fortunate to have the Mary Poppins of humans with us. We were just talking about this before <laughs> before we uh, before we got into the recording room. We have Eileen Strample with us today. She is practically perfect in every way and a wonderful mentor to me and just an all-around fantastic lady. So we've got her here with us today to talk about her amazing career and everything that she's done both as an administrator and as an academic and also as a performer both in the U.S. and Europe. So Welcome, Eileen. Oh, Laura, what a beautiful introduction. If I know this is a podcast, but you, if anyone could see me, they, I'd be, I'm blushing. Um, I can attest. <laughs> and just, uh, it's just a real honor and pleasure and delight to be here with you. And I'm just looking forward to the conversation. So thank you so much for the invitation. And just really, really happy to celebrate the holidays by, by sharing some nice conversation with you. Yes. And I know we talked about how the podcast has no visual component, but I must say that Eileen has the most spectacular Zoom background <laughs> I've ever seen. It's beautiful. All these gold ornaments and things. It's very <laughs> lovely. Eileen said she did it all herself and it looks great. <laughs> anyway, so here we are. So Eileen, tell us a little bit about you for the millions and millions of listeners who are going to be listening to this podcast. Chances are there are one or two people in there who may not know just who you are and how wonderful you are. So can you tell us just a little bit about yourself, I guess, both as a performer and as a person in academia, just kind of who you are and what brought you to where you are now? Well, again, just want to thank you and the whole Cincinnati Song Initiative for inviting me here today. It's just a a real pleasure. Um, It's our pleasure. We're so happy to have you. (laughs) And I'm looking at you in in lovely Minnesota. And I grew up in upstate New York in a town called Camillus, which in my mind has more cows than people. But um, (laughs) outside of 
outside of Syracuse. And, and back in the day, we used to listen for school closings in the winter. It's a form of entertainment in upstate New York, praying for the snow day. And they had they read off the schools that were closed alphabetically. And I went to West Genesee School District. So you had to sit through the whole list before you found out whether your school was closed or not. Um, and it was listening for school closings one morning that I heard classical music for the first time. I did not grow up with classical music. And it was a recording of Mendy Maslay um, singing uh, this amazing Spanish coloratura. And she was singing uh, Delib's Lachme. And I had never heard anything like it in my life. That was and my was first just, opera. I was so transfixed. I, like, I forgot all about the school closings. Like, I just... I had no idea that human voices could do such things. Mm -hmm. I mean, I listened, my parents, my dad was a country Western fan and my mom sang church hymns. You know, yeah. that was that was about it. That's what I had. And boy, that recording changed my life. And I told, I went into school the next day and told the elementary school music teacher that what I wanted to be when I grew up was an opera singer like Mandy Musplay, because that's what seven-year-olds do. And she happened to be the director of the Syracuse Children's Choir and was a, a great believer in young, young people singing. And um, awesome. so she brought me to a, a voice teacher and it was 8 a.m. on a Saturday morning because she was kind of irritated and didn't think that a seven or eight year old should be having voice lessons. But she heard me sing and took me on as a student that day. And I was really blessed. I mean, my big teacher all the way through high school was the soprano Helen Boatwright. And she was, a, she's, was the first person who recorded every single Ives song. Wow. And so I grew up thinking like Charles Ives and Mandy Misplay and, you know, that that was like everyone knew this stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> A very skewed, obviously, musical taste. And she was the one who mentored me and helped me make recordings to audition, not just for college, but also to become a presidential scholar. So I won that arts recognition and talent search and became a presidential scholar in the arts. And that gave me a full ride offers from all around the country and literally changed my life because I never would have thought I could have applied to Eastman, let alone get in, let alone get funding. So it transformed my life. And I, I went to Eastman as an undergrad. And that was when I realized how much I didn't know that suddenly here was this little girl with this very eclectic music taste. Um, <laughs> surrounded by people whose, you know, their their dad was the first chair for the New York Phil and their mom was the this and their, you know, that they mm -hmm. grew up knowing all these symphonies and playing in these youth orchestras since they were walking, it seemed. And I was just like, wow, I'm, I, I, I don't really know the Beethoven symphonies. <laughs> you know, so it was just, it was a very, um, it was just a huge period of growth. Like I just, I just soaked it up like a sponge. I had never heard of much of anything. Um, I hadn't heard of Nietzsche. I hadn't heard of, you know, people would show, you know, in song literature classes, um, you know, slides of great artists. And, and I would think, Clint? wow, I like him a lot, or, you know, whatever it was, <laughs> fill in the blank, you know, yeah. Borgel, you know, and everything was a revelation to me, because I'd had no exposure to any of this. And so it yeah. was just a, it was a great little place. But I also kind of felt like it was a little bit too much of a conservatory hothouse. And so I yeah. took some business courses at the University of Rochester, because I also started to get scared, like, I don't really know that much compared to most of the people around me. And I'll graduate knowing how to sing scales and flip hamburgers. And that, that terrified me. And in retrospect, that was a really great thing to do, because having that kind of comfort and facility with budgets and numbers what, what ended up being really helpful at other parts of my career. 
And, you know, I, I was so lucky. I had wonderful time at Indiana University for my grad school. Again, my ignorance continued. I applied to one graduate school. I, I didn't know any better. I was, I was a first-gen kid. I had no idea. Like, maybe you should apply to five or six. See where you get a good offer. You knew where you wanted to go. <laughs> Thank you. That's another nicer way of saying it. But I had you no... You knew where you wanted to go. I had no idea. I auditioned for one teacher at one university and made one application. I, I don't recommend doing what I did to anyone. But luckily, I got into IU and they were very nice to me. And uh, it, it was, I, I left uh, after I finished my master's in a year of my doctorate and I went and performed for most of my 20s. And I remember being, my husband was in Germany and what kind of acting as my agent there. And I remember, you know, singing in Brandenburg, Germany, which sounds great. I, I had evocative images of the Brandenburg concertos. And yeah. Bach, right? <laughs> and and it, it was, it was a word Usnich, right? It was like yeah. easterly. It was, you know, on the wrong side of the wall and had not seen a pothole repaired in 50 years. It was disgusting. And I just kind of remember looking around and the concept for this production of Quizzi Fantute was that Fiordaligi and, and all the women were going to be in bikinis. And I thought, excellent. I don't think I want to sing Come Scolio in a bikini. <laughs> I think, I think, I think I'm done. <laughs> I think I think I want more artistic control about what I'm doing rather than giving it to other people. So I called yeah. IU and I'd been gone about seven or eight years at that point from, from grad work. But the dean of the graduate school remembered me. And so I just chatted with him and said, you know, look, because he was just like, don't come back. No one ever finishes when they come back. They, they think they want to get their degree and then they don't. But he took a chance on me. And I just said, you know, look, the worst that happens is I pay my tuition. I try it for a year or two. I, I fail. And then I'm not mad at you. I have only myself to blame. Whereas if, if you don't let me in, then, then I'll really feel like you, you turned me away. And he's like, oh, all right, Eileen. <laughs> so he let me back in to the program and I, I finished in record speed. But underneath it all at that point, and that was after that time in Brandenburg, I really was thinking, I want to have my own artistic control. I really want to be doing projects that are meaningful to me. And mm -hmm. I really did think, you know, Mozart and Beethoven, they'd be fine without me. But I really started to think about women composers and, and really thinking I had a special role there that I could put all the things together. I could be doing the research or commissioning and finding the gems because not everything's a gem. Um, it's not like well, it's not like Wobegon. Everyone is not above average, um, yeah. you know. But I could curate the gems and really have a role both as a scholar and as a, a commissioner and an advocate, and then as a performer. And and so it, it really brought it all together for me. I I made the mistake. Uh, yet another mistake of uh, studying a French woman composer that, that no one's ever heard of, Marie de Grandval. And I was about eh, maybe a third of the way through my dissertation when I realized, oh, I think I want to be focused on American women composers. Why am I doing a French one? I'm sitting here in this horrible library reading 19th century musty uh, revue musicales. Yeah. <laughs> doing primary <laughs> research. Why am I doing this? But luckily, my, my dissertation advisor, Austin Caswell, said, just finish. Then you can do whatever you want. And now you know you want to focus on American women composers, but just finish this one on this French woman composer, which was great advice. But really, ever since then, that's really been my focus. Um, when it mm -hmm. comes to music scholarship, I do a lot of higher ed scholarship as well, thinking a lot about access and education. But when, yeah. I'm, when I'm thinking about music, it's, it's about women composers. And I really love 
collaborating. Um, I get, I don't get so much joy sitting in the practice room alone. I do it, but I really like people. I'm half Irish and half German. So the people love it just comes out. And yeah, I love working with composers. I love talking to them. I love understanding their work. I love understanding their motivations. And so I really started to get into a groove where I would either do the research to find music or commission it. And then I'd perform it a lot. You know, it's, you know, music is like wine. You know, it really needs to marinate a lot and sit around. Yeah. And then you go back to it six months later and then you realize, oh, now I understand it. <laughs> um, that is so true. It needs time. And I would, you know, I ended up uh, connecting really deeply with Sylvie Baudet, uh, a French pianist who is on the faculty at Eastman and runs their extension division. And she and I worked together for, for I don't know, a couple of decades. She was like my musical partner, husband, wife. <laughs> and so we, I would do all the research. We'd put the music together or we'd find, write commissions and get the commissions work together. We'd perform them for a few years. We'd get to the point where I was, and part of that performing, I'd always be writing about them, analyzing, thinking about them and writing sure. articles for the Journal of Singing because that helped me understand them. Yeah. I'd present them in lecture recitals or things like that. And then I'd finally write the article and then right about then would be the time I felt like I could then record the cycle. So, and we, we would do that, you know, it might take us three or four or five years to get through a, a big project, but boy, we just had a lot of fun doing that. And it's, I think the, the most fun we had was around a project around Margaret Atwood and uh, setting her poems. That was, that was probably the most fun, you know, just been, been so lucky um, in, in all of that had lots of support from uh, the university that I was at at, at the time, Syracuse University. And while I was there, I had a, a wonderful provost who said to me, hey, you know, you should think about an ACE fellowship and really think about going into administration because you've written all these grants, you're good with numbers, and you're already organizing this concert series on campus and managing artists mm -hmm. and budgets and contracts, and you should put it all together and go into academic administration. And thought, huh, okay, that sounds kind of interesting. And it was just then I was getting a little bored of teaching voice. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, how many times can I explain the difference between tongue vowels and lip vowels before I you know, I don't yeah. want to do that anymore? Um, so yeah. it actually kind of came at a good time uh, in my teaching career where I was thinking, mm, you're getting, starting to get a little bored with this. And I had a, a wonderful about 15, 16 months of basically learning how to be a college president or provost. I was placed at Colgate and, um, you know, just had so many amazing mentors through all that. And so that, that was really where my academic administrative career really took off. Yeah, now, now I'm the inaugural dean of the Herb Alpert School of Music here at UCLA. I like to think about it as I'm, I'm running a startup company. It was um, founded with a $30 million legacy gift from the trumpeter Herb Alpert. Yes, that Herb Alpert. And he's a charming, beautiful man. And yeah, it's the first and only school of music in the University of California system there's music departments but it's the first school mm -hmm. um, but nothing existed which is what made it fun I mean there were no monthly budget reports there was no mission or vision or core values there was no board of advisors there was you know it, it was, it's really just starting it from nothing so it's been a different type of creation at this point in my life but I've been really really feeling incredibly privileged to be part of that so anyway that's a very meandering that's really... meandering answer but no all that's amazing <laughs> 
because I knew I knew sort of chunks of your story, but it's just so beautiful how it all kind of comes together and how eventually like you kind of end up where you need to be in certain mm. points of your of your path. And one of the things I've always admired about you is you have always managed to find a way to bloom where you're planted. <laughs> you're kind of like a sunflower. You're always reaching more towards the sun and like finding more ways to sort of take more in, which is something I've always really admired about you, both like as a person and as as a working person. But it's just a really beautiful inspiration to the people who know you and also to me particularly as kind of mentor and everything but it's just really neat to hear all the projects and things that you've been involved in and now you have kind of the opportunity to solidify your your legacy really in this position as a dean it's I mean well it's true because you kind of get to build this whole this whole system and you know put good people in there and just make sure it's from what I know of you and your work it's going to be practically perfect in every way so <laughs> well it's, it's um it's really fun to be in LA and to be kind of starting something that's new um mm-hmm. but uh, and I often refer to it as a baby school which I kind of love but I also I would be really remiss to say that just in saying how how much I have benefited from so many people mentoring me at various stages like people sometimes ask who my mentor is it's like I have had so many wonderful people help me out. And yeah. so I just, um, you know, I'm just really humbled by that. And just, in, just I don't know, it's a, it's a point of gratitude to continue to just pay that energy out in the world and wherever you are, you know, and I, I don't know, there, there's something that's really tender about just the act of altruistically helping someone. They, they weren't out to help me because they were going to get something. There wasn't an agenda. There wasn't, it wasn't like a, a catchy networking. These are people who are just yeah. genuinely being kind and helpful to me. And I've been really lucky. Yeah. Well, I think anyone who knows you and has had the benefit of your wisdom and friendship is also very, very lucky, which I I like to include myself in on those people. Yeah, I I feel very, very fortunate. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So this kind of brings a let's let's kind of bring it back home a little bit. So what is our connection? Oh, well, first of all, admiring (laughs) you in the halls of CCM because of your smile and your Every time I would see you, even before I was blessed to have you in a, in a class, you were always reading something or had a new score of music, and you were you yep. were just your your brain was always looking for the new, looking for new compositions, new input. You know, you're just such a beacon of, of curiosity and energy. So it was just a real delight. I was so lucky to teach a, a class in a doctoral vocal pedagogy. And they're, you know, really trying to pay back some of the energy of a wonderful mentor I had in terms of teaching, who's uh, now deceased, Bill MacGyver. He was on the faculty at Eastman. But it was the NATS, um, the National Association of Teachers of Singing's internship program during the summer, where they had a master teacher, which was Bill MacGyver, and then in one little pod, three untenured voice faculty who are desperately trying to learn how to teach. Of course, I didn't really know how to teach very well. They don't teach you that in graduate school, generally. They don't. Uh, Yours is the first class where I actually got, Lord knows I needed it, feedback (laughs) on your teaching. And I cannot even begin to tell you how valuable that is. And you taught me the value of getting that oh, feedback. And it's so important. But it's part of like creating that safe space where we could all actually hear what each other had to say, right? There, you have yeah. to, there's a lot of trust that goes into that. And 
And I learned that from Bill MacGyver. It was awesome. It was incredibly humbling, right? Because the, you know, I'd yeah. be struggling usually with some male voice that I was just like, I don't know how to teach that. <laughs> <laughs> you know? What do you want me to do? I don't know. Are you supposed to cover? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just had no, I, I just was so clueless. It was, it's truly comical. I feel sorry for anyone that had to study voice with me for about the first 15, 20 years. But, you know, it was great because I'd be struggling and it'd be kind of painful. And, you know, Bill would let me struggle for a long time, but then he would, you know, come in and he would just say, do you mind if I just try something for a moment? <laughs> Please, I'm flailing. <laughs> and, you know, he, of course, he would come in with just the perfect exercise or the perfect example or, you know, the perfect phrase of, well, what do you think about trying it this way? And, and the lesson would just bloom into this whole other place. And he was just so humble. And so he had that kind of Southern gentleman charm so that anything he could say, yeah. even though, you know, I was a really horrible teacher at that point, he was just so obviously kind about it. He just wanted you to be better. And that was just so sincere from him that it, all yeah. of us learned so much, not just from him, but from each other, because there was so much freedom to just help each other become better. And how, how what a yeah. beautiful opportunity that is to have a, a safe space where you really feel everyone in the room is just trying to make it, trying to turn the dial in the positive direction. I think we, not just in, not just in the voice studio, I think everyone in the entire world could use a little bit of that. Grace. We all need a little bit of grace right now, don't we? Especially now. Yeah especially now but always and I just have to throw out there Eileen it was really you who got me into writing um Aww. I mean I always knew I kind of enjoyed it but it was uh, even despite having to you know put together a lecture recital and doing all of you know the writing that's associated with that and everything I did my best writing for your class because you always encouraged us to find things that we were passionate about things that excited us or that we were curious about. And that was when I realized that academic writing does not have to be boring. <laughs> oh, please God, no. It can be, <laughs> well, I mean, here's the thing is I, you know, go through all of this research and everything and I would, I would be like, wow, this is so unimaginative. I mean, it's, it's interesting because it's about what I'm curious about, but you know, the use of language is very sad or something, you know, and I, it was really because of you and your encouragement that I had an opportunity to write academically and creatively kind of both in one, which was very, very exciting. Well, so for those project. of you who are listening, it is possible. Well, and your project changed me. <laughs> I mean, this is what's the great thing about just um, having a, a learning community together. Your, your research project changed me and that whole self-care wheel it was, it was oh, actually yeah. something that I kept and then downloaded fresh copies of that I came to UCLA and distributed to the student affairs staff so that they could take care of themselves a little more, but also take That's care of the awesome. students. So you, uh, you, you've touched me. Your project was incredibly, I thought, genuinely provocative, helpful, important work. I'm so tickled by that. I still have a working draft of that somewhere on my hard drive that I I want to do a little more research on that and eventually publish it. it. It's timely. Um, got, that's but, we need that one now. <laughs> yeah. So, but it's it's still there, and I'm I'm glad that I I had a little you part did. to play in in the self care wheel. Did. That's great. So I just wanted to kind of open up the floor a little bit to talk more about you talk you talk a lot about your work with. American female composers and, you know, commissioning and performing and researching. And I guess one of the first questions I usually start off with in, in this podcast is what to you 
is an art song um, because I feel like a lot of people have different opinions on that. People say it's words set to music. People say it's poetry set to music. People say it's a singer and a pianist. So what to you is an art song? And um, I guess, how does that differ from something like opera? Oh, boy, to me, art song is the marriage of poetry and music. And the instrumentation doesn't matter. You know, if I mm-hmm. think about Libby Larson's song, Take, that she wrote for me on a Margaret Atwood poem, it's a cappella. So it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. But there's, what does matter, I think, is the, the intimacy, the, the care with the text. And I mean, on every level, from its ostensible meaning to the subtext, to the colors of the vowels and the feeling of the various consonant shapes and consonant clusters. There's just a craft mm-hmm. work to it and, and a multi-layered sense that is just so rich and compelling and beautiful. And I love, I love that intimacy of it. And I would contrast it with opera in that sense. Not that opera can't have intimate moments, but you know, it's it's meant to be a, a very different, almost grandiose uh, or larger than life moment. And an art song is exactly the opposite. It's a miniature of life. And because of its exquisite miniatureness, it actually is a microcosm of, of profundity. when when crafted well. So I I really salute the Cincinnati Song Initiative because it it really has that at its core, you know, a deep appreciation of the profundity of song. We're trying. But no, that's, I think you hit the nail on the head for me. I'm sure there are people out there who would find other aspects of that of your of your thoughts to to build on but that really hits on it for me is that it to me it's more of a I don't even know if vignette is the right word but it's something that it's it's part of a story that someone can really actually step into and it's an invitation to allow people into that world as opposed to where I feel like opera like you said it's grandiose you're putting on these grand gestures and you are showing people a world but not necessarily inviting people in does that make sense So I love that that's how you view art song. I think I am very much on that page with you and I'm, I'm there. But I did want to talk to you too about our duty to art song and finding different media in which to perform it. And I think I was mentioning this too as we were talking about um, why we started the podcast. We were looking for new ways to reach our audiences. But, you know, with art song, I mean, we're doing the same thing. We're, we're trying to find new ways during the pandemic to reach our audience. Um, so we came up with this idea of a, a virtual season, um, which I think a lot of, you know, other arts organizations have done. But I feel like, you know, you have such a beautiful and creative way of looking at hurdles, mm-hmm. shall we say? <laughs> That I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts on what our obligation or duty is to the evolution of art song and its performance, both during the pandemic and even afterwards. Wow. Hmm. That... Like I said, it's a, it's it's a hefty thing, and more not even just a question so much as just something I'd be really curious to have a discussion about because I think a lot of people mm-hmm. again have different viewpoints of what's going to stick and what's not going to stick and what works and what doesn't and how we see our duty to keeping this this art form alive how what that looks like i love your word choice of duty and i think there is a choice um i think that what the pandemic underscores for all of us is there's three different crises that are happening now simultaneously 
each one of them is utterly worthy of a full-time job just contemplating what does that mean and how it intersects mm-hmm. with music as well as within broader society. You know, we've we've got the global pandemic, that little thing. We have <laughs> we've <What's> got <laughs> the racial reckoning that's happening in the yeah. wake of the murder of George Floyd and the reigniting of the energy with Black Lives Matter. And we've got a global climate crisis um, that seems to have receded in our, yeah. our consciousness in the, in, the, in the midst of these kind of more immediate threats. But, it, but it's there. And certainly in California yeah. with the wildfires, it's, it's more omnipresent. Yes. Um, but all of those three, one of the things that they have in common is they call us to our nobler version of ourselves, to care not so much about our own personal right to wear or not wear a mask or to not question some of the systemic ways in which we've been privileged. It calls it all into question. It really calls us to take care of each other, to think about people outside of ourselves, to not navel gaze, but to think about humanity largely drawn. And that's a beautiful, noble calling of the self and the soul. And music is a way of of conveying the primacy and the importance and the urgency of all of that. And so I, I, I think... If anything, it underscores the intrinsic importance of, of what we're all trying to do as artists, as musicians, as composers, um, as presenters. You know, we're really trying to have it be larger than any personal or immediate challenge, but actually to help us all get to the place of, of taking care of our environment, of each other, of, uh, of addressing mm-hmm. um, systemic racism, what that means in our country. There, there's just, there's so much in each one of those, but that. That longing, I think, uh, to take care of each other, to to think about what is the legacy that we want to leave behind, not in a grandiose sense, but in quite the opposite, in a very humble sense. And do we want to be known as someone who's taking care of people that we don't even know by doing something as simple as wearing a mask and practicing physical distancing? You know, that that caretaking of each other, um, I think, is just such a beautiful part of what this particular moment reminds us of in that place of, of caretaking is is music. You know, thinking about the compositions right now, I was just listening to Richard Daniel Poor's um, latest compositions and, that are for the Oregon Bach Festival that, that just premiered last week that were oh, sure. just exquisite. And, um, you know, I, part of each one of those movements was, you know, talking about different, different people who, in the pandemic that are caretaking. You know, that was the first responders or sure. physicians and, and going, going through... Um, people who are, who are being called to a, a better version of themselves. So I, I, I love this particular moment in that, despite its contradiction, right? We're at home, we're quarantined, and we're alone, um, mm-hmm. but instead mm-hmm. called to, to take care and be very external in our focus. And I, I think, you know, what's the Hawaiian saying? I'm too blessed to be stressed, <laughs> you know? <I> just, <laughs> Just to, you know, really, um, really acknowledging those blessings and then really trying to do something with that energy. No, I absolutely agree. And I've, I've had different conversations with a lot, a lot of my friends and colleagues and interviews and things like this. It's really interesting to me to see how individuals are respond, individual Mm -hmm. artists, whether it be directors, Mm -hmm. singers, pianists, composers, poets. It's, it's so different from person to person, how everyone is responding individually to the demands and the drains of the pandemic, because some people, and recently I've talked to a few people who just said like, I haven't been able Mm -hmm. to do anything. 
for almost a year, their response to the pandemic has been, you know, I do not feel that now is the time that I can make art, you know, either whether it's because they're emotionally drained themselves, or if they want to make room for other voices. Like you said, you know, especially during this time when we are really contemplating as a nation, our, our duty to addressing those racial disparities that we're seeing um, that we have been seeing for hundreds of years, but really I, th- I feel like we're at critical mass to actually start dealing with um, in a very real way. Um, but then you have the other side of it, people who just are gung-ho about like, now is the time to create those musical connections. Now is the time to make art that people mm-hmm. can rally around. Because I, I, I find that, at least myself, when I, when I find people who are um, addressing through music or visual components or dance or whatever it is, addressing things that I'm going through, mm-hmm. I just cling to it. And I find other people, I'm like, oh, you found this song cycle too, or you found this one performance too, that just like really brings it home, you know, what we're going through right now it's just really interesting in the conversations that I've been in is it really just it really does kind of fall into two camps (laughs) honestly for me it kind of depends on the day um I found especially now that I'm coming Mm -hmm. into like the holiday season I'm really wanting to make more art and weirdly just like sing things that are familiar things that bring Mm. me comfort which a lot of it is <laughs> Christmas hymns. <laughs> uh, my current favorite right now is Lo How a Rose Air Blue oh, um, because song. it's beautiful and brings me to tears every time I sing it. I can't think about it or I'll start to cry. But, you know, just things that I'm in this point right now where, you know, the holiday season, usually it doesn't, you know, whether you're celebrating Kwanzaa, Hanukkah or Christmas, it's it's a season of great joy for many people because it's not just celebrating something religiously beautiful but also it's a beautiful time to spend with family and with friends and a lot of people don't have that opportunity this year um, due to you know physical distancing or um, family members who have passed away from COVID or you know whatever but it's I'm, I'm craving that sort of holiday stability um, I guess in that way which has kind of really led me to wanting to connect with people more in just those really simple ways just by you know singing hymns or whatever but I would say up until maybe September or so um, once I started working on the concert that I was recording for CSI that came out on Sunday I really I wasn't singing I just didn't have the energy it was too too painful Mm. I didn't see the point and I felt like I there were other I was definitely in that camp of like there were other people whose voices really needed to be heard and I could take the time to, I could take what energy I did have left to allow those people to speak and to absorb and to understand and to contemplate and kind of do my own work mm-hmm. on that. It's really interesting to talk to the the different folks who um, have had those different reactions. It helps because we know you're we're not, not alone. You're not <laughs> no matter alone. What we're going and I'm a, I like to think of myself as a walking judgment-free zone. <laughs> I love that. I love that. That's great. But I know you mentioned earlier that at UCLA, they're, they're looking at starting vaccinations in March, which is amazing. We're actually looking at a time where we could be like post-COVID is in the future now. It's a very small pinprick <laughs> at the end of a very long, dark tunnel, but it's there. But I, I do think that even once, once we are past mm-hmm. all of this, we are going to continue to have these conversations because I think 
COVID especially, because we've developed so many uh, technologies surrounding our performances mm-hmm. and how we communicate and how we're able to connect with people. I think COVID will have left an indelible mark on music, on art, for better or for mm-hmm. worse, I'm not sure yet. But I think we haven't seen the end of the digital <laughs> concert. <laughs> Hopefully the technology will be better, but, <laughs> but I don't think we've don't seen think the so. end of it. <laughs> So Eileen, I wanted to talk to you, I know this is kind of one of the big things that I wanted to talk to you about today, apart from, you know, COVID and everything, um, is your contribution to the mm-hmm. body of art song. I know just from our conversations and everything, I know that you have a really lovely relationship with Libby Larson. And just, can you talk to us about, I know you you talked about it briefly, kind of your your process of commissioning and performing and recording, but your process of picking texts and picking composers and working on those commissions, working on Mm. those performances and all the stuff that you kind of has a dedicated to Eileen Strempel in the subtext, you know, just Mm. your contribution to the body work, because it's a lot. And I would love to just absorb that and hear you talk about that Um, a little bit. In a weird way, it's, it's not that different from being a dean where it's not about you it's about making great things happen for other people who are super talented it, it's sweet to hear you talk about it in, in in that way but i i really feel like i'm just the one that was able to have the privilege of working with such amazing composers it's it's really about them it's not about me i think the whole one of the parts that i just thought has been incredibly powerful for me is when the combination with margaret atwood I met her at a dinner party and she was a, a guest at Syracuse University and had like a the Watson lectureship where she was there for a week or so. And she's, I mean, she's a beautiful person, incredibly strong, very acerbic, dry wit. I mean, just, just. And, I love and, that. And um, it was at a particular time too, where I, it finally was starting to dawn on me. Wow. There's a lot of mansplaining going on in the world. I'm kind of tired of that. And I was at a dinner party with, with uh, and some of the big mansplainers of the university, everyone wanted to go to that dinner because it was, you know, mm-hmm. and it was a you know, very small kind of sit down dinner for whatever it was, 12 people or 10 or something. And, you know, the, the mansplainers of the institution were, were there trying to mansplain over Margaret Atwood, which lasted about, oh, 10 seconds before she oh, no. kind of squished them. And I thought, oh, I, I really like her. <laughs> I mean, I always loved her writing, but like, I really like her. <laughs> and, but just did it in yeah. such a, a funny way, like, you know, cutting them off and telling them about some story with the Queen of England or something. I mean, like, like you can't top her stories, you know, it's, it was just great. Um, no. But it was, I laugh at the moment, but it was really, it was a moment when it crystallized for me that the female voice, we don't, we don't hear it enough. And to work with female composers who are, who are strong, who have something to say that needs to yeah. be heard, needs to be cultivated, needs to be commissioned, needs to be shared, needs to be proclaimed from the rooftop. You know, it was just, yeah. you know, I, and I, I just think that it being a, a tiny part of that has been just a huge joy and a hell of a lot of fun. I mean, these are, these are great people. Um, I mean, I love all their music. Um, you yeah. know, you asked me what my favorite song cycle is, and it's probably whatever one I'm working on at the moment, because I always fall in love with that one. But yeah. You know, each one has just been so special, but it's because of it's because of those women and their voices, which have just really touched me. That's amazing. Is there? Um, I mean, I know you said your favorite is 
is the one <laughs> that you're you're currently working on. But I'm sure that the process for each one, it sounds like they were highly individualized. It really depended on who you were working with or what poetry you were working with. Have you found that you kind of fall into a certain pattern of like, I found the text, this composer is interested, I've worked with them before, let's mm -hmm. collaborate? Or um, have you been approached by composers to say, hey, I am working on this set and I think you would be really lovely to, you know, mm. work on this or, yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that part of the process it's, as well. Yes, and. <laughs> Both and. <laughs> I, I think I tend to just love to read poetry and each time I've gotten involved in a poet, sure. you know, I think Margaret Atwood had written 19 books of poetry and so I just read every one you know, kind of originally had maybe like my hundred favorite, but then I called down to like very painfully my 50 favorites. <laughs> and then I sent that, yeah. those 50 poems out to different composers and said I was interested in, in thinking about this project and you know, which which ones would they want. And sometimes they chose the same poem, <laughs> which was fun. So I have a couple poems that got set by two different composers. So I've certainly done it that way. But then sometimes it's also just been quite the opposite. Right after 9-11, I wanted to work, I wanted to commission Libby Larson to write something again for me, just because I love working with her and admire her so profoundly. And I didn't have, I, I told her I didn't have any poems that I was particularly obsessing with um, at that moment, but I did really want them to be by females if possible. And she mm -hmm. was the one who came back and said, well, you know, inspired by 9-11, I've found these various Arabic women poets, and I would like to set these, do these speak to you, would that be okay? And I was, and, and of course, she just chose these amazing song texts, um, which yeah. ended up being this unbearable stillness, songs from the balcony. I feel like we did a Composers and Cocktails with Libby, this is, oh gosh, a handful of months ago, and I feel like she mentioned those pieces and just it sounds like such an incredible experience to be able to kind of be in on the ground floor of um, putting all of that together and during such an, yeah, important, an time. important time. I mean, I was oh, nine. I was nine. Feel old. I think at the time <laughs> I was a little peanut, but I still at the time like I understood the gravity of the situation and how how profoundly it affected people, especially living in New York for my undergrad, just being there even 10 years after the fact. It's really profound. And that's just, that's such an amazing thing. I mean, you've been a part of so many amazing commissions, and was, but that's just, she was just that's brilliant. And it, it really is um, when you have a composer that you develop such a rapport with, it's a true gift. So, you know, to folks that are yeah. out there taking the time over the years to really have that rich relationship, just um, after a while, it's like, oh, you know, when she wrote songs from the balcony, first of all, there's like little musical jokes when, you know, the text is like, I lean against the balcony. She chose that one so she could have my name in it. <laughs> Kind of cute little things, That's but also cute. just like yeah. someone who knows your voice so well. It's like, yeah, I really thought about which note I wanted you to hold here, and I know that this is a beautiful note in your range. And you know, it's like having this tailored, but just the just the joy and yeah. the playfulness, even with songs that are in, in a certain sense incredibly sad and haunting there's still the joy and the playfulness around the creative aspect. And I think that's, that's even more important. And that's something I've talked to, I've talked to several coaches about, but just kind of the importance of like the thing that makes sadness. So almost like, like you feel it more, it makes it more poignant is when you have the joy or the happiness or mm. something that kind of juxtaposes it. And I think even when you're working on something that is so profound, you have that opportunity to, 
to just kind of settle in experience, even if it's just like a very quiet moment of like, I am very fortunate or blessed or whatever, grateful to be able to work on a project like this. And in a small way, this might sound kind of morbid, but that's kind of how I feel whenever I get asked to sing for funerals, which, you know, it's like, I, I weirdly get a small amount of joy out of it, but it's because I'm able to provide something for grieving people, like beautiful music, hopefully, and something that will bring them solace eventually, you know, over the course of the service or something. It's just, it's one of, it's, you're able to find like little moments of joy even when you're working on something. I know exactly what you mean. Serious. During this um, COVID time, I lost my dad and I sang for his funeral. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, I know exactly what you mean. And the beauty of bearing emotional witness to a very, very sacred moment. But at least you had the opportunity to um, share your gift, which I'm sure he was very proud of. That is a beautiful thing. Anyway... Uh, onto hopefully slightly happier subjects. Um, there was one thing I actually did want to follow up with you about is I remember having a conversation with you after you had just um, given a lecture for Professor Griffith's songlet class about American art song and female composers and American female composers. And I asked you afterwards something you were working on, and forgive me, I may be butchering this, but you found you were working on commissioning a composer for texts set by African women. <laughs> I think at that point or something. And I can't, I forgive me if I'm butchering this, but I wanted to, I just wanted to follow up and see if that was something that came to fruition or if I'm completely messing it up and it was a different completely project. different project. I, um, <laughs> and I, it's, I should actually connect you now that you're in Minnesota. Um, uh, the wonderful, wonderful gem of a composer and human being, Jocelyn Hagen. And okay. she lives up in the cold places with y'all there. And she's a, her music is especially satisfying to sing. I mean, she's really um, so idiomatic for the female voice, but she's also a pianist. And That's so great. the piano parts are, they only work together. You can't like just listen to the piano accompaniment or just sing them. It's that the two really complete each other. Sure. And yeah, she's, I just love her work. And she's done some really interesting, again, small part for me. She has a new commissioning model that she uses, which is um, to make it affordable for young artists or not so young artists um, to be able to commission in consortium. And what you're guaranteed is that you would have the first performance in whatever your state and then someone sure. else gets the first performance here and there and you know whoever gets the grand the world premiere gets it you know has That's to pay a little awesome. bit more but basically everyone gets a premiere and she's able to then make enough from a commission to actually devote herself to art song where she makes most of her money at the or these larger scale commissions but she loves song and so to yeah, be able to course. be supported and funded to write song she does it through consortiums yeah, it's, a, it's just a great awesome. idea. And again, you know, me, I just love collaboration and being able to, um, you know, again, just yeah. brings it, brings songs out um, to so many different people um, in so many different parts of the country, really almost simultaneously. And yet, at the same time, you know, you're the, you're the one who's sharing it, you're the one who's premiering it. Um, and then for the composer, they get suddenly to hear not just like a one world premiere, and then maybe I don't hear it again. You get lots of performances by different artists yeah. um, and different interpretations. You get to really know your yeah. own work 
through the lens of others, I think in a pretty magical way. So I just think it's a really brilliant model for commissioning. Amazing. Oh, that's great. Well, speaking of new projects and things, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about some of the projects that um, you've either worked on recently. You've talked a lot about this Margaret Atwood project. I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit more, Um, but just some some projects that, you know, our audience as they're listening can Mm. have an opportunity to check out, whether it's, you know, singing or academic writing, how people can kind of connect with you and your body of work. uh, Well, there's hard to know exactly which one to talk about. Maybe the most recent or the three most um, recent? It's on a little bit of a different tack. Um, So apologies if that's um, too much off to the side. But, you know, the last... um, Oh, going on more than half a decade, I've been at public institutions, public higher ed. That's one of the beautiful things about CCM, mm-hmm. where, where you and I met, and also at UCLA. You know, it's mm-hmm. the nation's number one public university, and yet in there, you know, in-state tuition is, is affordable. And I've really mm-hmm. thought a lot about this kind of intersection of, of access and excellence and diversity. And, trying, and, and in a public, you can have all three, right? Because it's yeah. affordable enough. And really thinking, yeah. you know, music is the point of entry, right? We don't want classical music to only be um, for wealthy white people, right? There, there's a profundity that there's a there's yeah. a painful history rooted in a very Eurocentric white male world that needs to be acknowledged yes. and explored and discussed. And but there there is a transcendence there. And then that, lately, I've been thinking about that more on a broader national scale about public higher education and just education more broadly, not just in music and the humanities, but just having excellent public higher education available to all. So my latest book um, is with my co-author Stephen Handel. It'll be out with Rowan Littlefield Press in January, actually. And it's entitled Beyond Free College, Making Higher Education Work for 21st Century Students. And so really thinking about public policy and um, using a lot of metadata analysis. So kind of rather than looking at one study, looking at a study that looks at 200 studies and then draws the big conclusions out of them. So doing metadata analysis about all Mm -hmm. the investments we're making in education and understanding what really works, what was kind of set up because of a special interest and isn't actually really great um, return on investment for you and I as taxpayers. Um, But how do we how do we really make sure Sure. that we preserve our democracy um, uh, into the future? Um, And what does that look like? And um, so I've been, been thinking a lot about that. Um, well, see, it feels very yeah, timely. <laughs> yeah. Um, a, a small side. Um, would you be able to send me a link to oh, that? Sure. We can put it in the description notes for the podcast so people can click it. And then um, when it becomes available, people can oh, awesome. um, have a way to, to buy your book. Um, so if you if you wouldn't mind oh, yeah. or um, have Daniel send it to me, that would be amazing. I would love to uh, include yeah. that in our in our show Aww. notes so people can can know where to find it. Um, and I did I did want to um, follow up. I I know you you showed it to me the the Atwood CD. So can you just talk to us a little bit about this project? Because I'm just so I'm so fascinated by this this woman <laughs> with this acerbic dry wit, and you have this this incredible album that focuses around her text. So can you just talk to us a little bit about that? I think one of the things that it points to is, um, is the wonderful random nature of inspiration. Um, like, look at you and I just talking about Jocelyn Hodge. Yeah. Yeah. That could be, that could be just one of those moments, right? Um, 
you know, there was a, a long process yeah. and I'll, I'll just use this as one little window. Um, a wonderful, amazing uh, Castilian composer, Elena Fabregas wrote, um, oh, she's amazing. Oh, I know. I've seen some oh, of my her gosh. stuff. Um, yeah. And the Society for really New Music um, was um, one of our uh, co-sponsors for that commission. And um, Elisenda came in uh, to rehearse with Sylvie Baudet and I and, um, you know, put everything together for the premiere. She's a, a stunning human being. Um, and as part of my way of getting to know the work better, you know, I like to perform stuff a lot to dig it into my my psyche, my heart, my voice. Mm -hmm. And so Sylvie and I went down to Florida to sing for the Feminist Music Theory Conference. And um, I think it was one of my first trips without without a child uh, attached onto me. I have two sons, one who's now 20 and one who's uh, just turned 16. But I, we rented a convertible because we both have two sons and we were both like, woohoo, we're, we're, we're down here in, in Miami. And, um, and we, we sang um, the Elisenda's uh, setting of Margaret Atwood. But at that same, uh, at that same conference, uh, that was the first time that I, uh, met Judith Cloud and um, just, you know, she loved the performance that we had done of Elisenda's. And I was like, well, we're looking for one last set and maybe I could commission you, um, you know, so just, it, I, but, um, just those lovely moments of serendipity. And um, so I, um, yeah. I just think more than, you know, than telling the whole story of everything, I just, I would underscore just the, the beauty of being open to musical chants musical chances that that somehow gets sprinkled in your lap um, and, and Judith Cloud was a blessing that came out of out of performing Elisenda's work so it, it's just nice nice in that way yeah that's something that uh we Sam and I have have talked a lot about is being part of Cincinnati Song Initiative well Sam you know obviously founded it but one of the things that's been so funny is it's gotten to the point where it's fairly regular for me to be copied on emails with like Ricky Ian Gordon or Tom Chapulo or having the opportunity to talk to people um, like Lori Laitman <laughs> or Libby Larson or you um, and to just like make these connections which like you said are very serendipitous the CSI just kind of fell in my lap and I was like this is great and it's opened up so many doors and I mean even just um, you know knowing you and um, having the opportunity to work with you on some of my research and through school and, um, you know, both academically and musically, just, it's, it's really amazing how just little moments like that can blossom into something really, really amazing. It's beautiful. One of the best parts of life. It's lovely. Anyway, a small aside, but yeah. And that's something that, um, kind of the older I get, I'm by no means old yet, but as, I, as I'm getting more years of experience yes <laughs> I look back and I realize that I did have you know those opportunities and those moments of like wow if this hadn't happened yeah. nothing else after it that I wow. you know have come yeah. to know as my life would have happened just amazing just which amazing. is so neat yeah well um I know that you're going to send me a link for your book coming out in January, which sounds fantastic. Um, I will make sure that I add that to my list of books to get and read um, because it sounds very timely. 
Um, are there any other ways that our um, devoted listeners can connect with you or um, any other projects or books that you are like, Ooh, this, this is very representative of who I am or um, I don't know, just other ways that they can connect with you um, before we, before we um, uh, boy, call it you a know, day. Uh, Laura, I'm going to just send this one right back to you. Um, I think one of the best ways they can connect to me would be to actually listen to the beautiful recital that now I'm going to go listen to that you just released to me, that would be the the best way. It's 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 um it's not about me. It's about the next generation and about the wonderful work you're doing. Oh. <clears throat> I'm getting a little verklempt. That's very sweet. Thank you. And um, we are we are so grateful for you and everything. Well, I'm so grateful oh. for you too and everything that you've done for me. Um, but I also, we like to finish off our podcast, um, with a little, a pithy piece of advice. Um, it can be serious or not. Um, you know, I, I think I, our first podcast, uh, was just Sam and me. Um, I closed it off with, um, say the pianist, don't staple your music, you know? So just, it can be, it can be anything, a piece of advice, whether it's about life or food or you know, a way to not forget your keys when you leave your house. I don't know. But just a pithy piece of advice that you can um, give our listeners that they can, can, I they two? can take can I cheat? take to heart. Um, so, yes. uh, you know, Absolutely. I, I think one of the best things is to, it's, it's not an either or world. Don't think of it as this or that. You can almost always find a way to get to and. And finding some crazy, even if it's totally crazy, um, but being open to that compromise, that creativity, that innovation, um, especially if you're trying to juggle parenthood and young kids into the mix too, don't, don't think of it as an either or world. How, how can I do this yeah. or that? That's not the question. Um, and so I think that that's, that's a, it's a real important orientation to have if you can. Um, understanding some days you just want to say, screw it. You can't do that. <laughs> um, and the other one, uh, you know, um, <laughs> we have our, our family hashtag, which is um, uh, hashtag family badass. Um, you know, that it, it, the, the motto behind that is uh, work hard, play hard. Um, so, you know, just do it, do exactly what you're doing, Laura. You're like, you're, you're curious, you're open, you're working hard, you're being creative. Um, you know, just, just, just work hard, but then play hard too. play with intentionality and abandon and focus. Don't be texting on your damn phone, just play hard too. And uh, sometimes even if you have to go to a place where you can't have your phone in order to play um, play is an important part. It, some people would get, get too much into just the yeah. work hard. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And oh, yeah. if you do end up going to watch that concert I did on Sunday, I was, I was watching it and I was like, wow, I feel like I look at it and I'm like, wow, I'm being such a goober in that concert. But what I realized is when I was performing it is I, mm -hmm. it had been a long time <laughs> since I had actually just had fun yeah. while, while singing, because, you know, and I know, you know, this, like in an academic situation, you're constantly thinking about like, <laughs> Oh, how am I maneuvering my passaggio? Am I covering too much? Is my soft palate high enough? What is my tongue doing? You know, you're constantly thinking about these ridiculous technical things and, I finally had an opportunity to just like, to just play. And I kind of looked at myself and I was like, wow, I'm being a goober. But then 
My husband Amen. astutely pointed Amen. out, he's like, no, you're just having fun. <laughs> just having fun. I'm grateful he pointed it out to me. No, otherwise, I probably no. would have suffered through being embarrassed. But but yeah, I, I, I think that is an excellent thing to remember. We, is we, we really do have to play. And I think... Uh, Oh, I know. We tend to forget that no. with all of the emails Don't do that, that we get. Play some more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Eileen, thank you so much for being here. This is like, I mean, both just from a connecting, reconnecting, getting to talk to you standpoint, but also just getting to hear so much about your work and um, how much oh. you've contributed to the art form that we hold so dear um, has delight. been, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and I'm just so grateful that you took the time to to talk to me today and um Very fun. I hope that part of it was play for you too um Aww. but yeah I'm just I'm really grateful oh, thank that you, you and that you, you are just a blessing today. and joy and um CSI is just doing great things has wonderful leadership and um just uh, happy that uh, in your own way you're turning the dial and making the world a better place and what a great way to ring in the holiday season thank you Thank you.